Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's October the 8th, a Saturday, 2022. Oh, Talk to many, many authors on this show. And one of the things that always intrigues me um, is how people can work together on a book. Uh, it's challenging enough, I know, as an author of several books, writing one myself. But to write a book with another person or perhaps a third person seems to me to be doubly or triply challenging. Um, my guest today is indeed the co-author of a book with two colleagues, Christopher Frank and Odit Netzer, of a new book um, on um, corporate decision-making, uh, Decisions Over Decimals. His name is Paul Magnone, and he's joining us from, uh, I was going to say he's joining us from Google. He's not joining us from Google. He's joining us from New York City. Um, and uh, before we get into the, the book, Paul, uh, You've worked with um, you've worked with Christopher Frank before on another book, a book ten years ago, "Drinking from the Fire Hose," which covers similar ground. How do you manage to write a book with two other people? Do you have a kind of intuitive sense of where they're coming from? That's a nice tie-in there. Um, so uh, yes. So first off, Chris and I went to college together, so we've known each other and collaborated in many ways over many decades. So that has become fairly seamless. The third leg, uh, Oded, uh, we've been teaching together for seven years. So I think, I think you're quite right. If you were to jump in and try and co-author something in year one of a collaboration, it would be far more difficult than uh, the way it worked for us. As you noted, Paul, I slipped in the word intuition, which is the heart of your book. Um, how broadly are you thinking about this issue of intuition in terms of uh, this new book? Uh, the book is called Decisions Over Decimals, Striking the Balance Between Intuition and Information. What for you is intuition? What does it mean? And why is it an important business issue these days? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, I think the key word out of that entirety is balance, because uh, there's plenty of content out there talking about one side or the other, talking about gut or EQ, talking about data and then deeper data and then more data. And our point is that a very good decision maker is balancing all of that and taking a holistic view of all of that. So we're often asked, can you teach intuition? And um, it, let's go back to basics. The theory of learning talks about intuitive skills, right? So how do you learn to walk and then ride a bike? And then how do you learn to drive? All of these are taught. And, but think of that progression of the toddler who eventually grows up and drives a car. And so there's a progression that they go along two dimensions, consciousness and competence. And when you think of that, there's a quick little ladder to step through where at the beginning, you're unconsciously incompetent. You don't know what you don't know. Then you proceed to have a sense of what's happening because the toddler's taken a few steps and learned about gravity and learned about stubbing their toes and, and all of that. 
So you have some domain knowledge. And then time goes by and you've practiced your craft. And then you're consciously competent, but it requires effort. And then you get to the point where you are unconsciously competent. You're doing things without having to think about them. So this is almost like Dan Kahneman's, uh, Daniel Kahneman's system one and system two. So now you have a habit, you've got a domain that is second nature, and you begin to intuitively react. And we all have these capabilities, but we tend to diminish them in the business world and not listen to that voice and certainly not lean into building those skills. This is, of course, an eternal issue, the one between uh, intuition and data or information. But it's particularly relevant these days, Paul, isn't it? Because every business exec um, is is uh, drowning, and, and I'm sure there are more vulgar words, drowning in data. There's more and more data, um, and it's harder and harder to sort through that data. And and that data is ubiquitous. It's coming at us from every direction, particularly for guys like you in, in, in technology. Uh, that's true. And you mentioned the first book, and thank you for that as well. The first book was about managing the fire hose of data, right? So there's all this data that's coming to you, and people used to talk about the three Vs, volume, velocity, and, uh, and variety. And we like to think about the five Vs. There's also uh, veracity, is it true? and volatility. Is it there today? Is it there tomorrow? Are you basing decisions on information and data streams that may not be there? This second book is about just take a deep breath. You have to deal with the volume. The volume's not going away. We all acknowledge that it's increasing. So how do you build a toolkit for yourself to navigate in that environment where there's more information and frankly, you need to deal with more ambiguity? That's really what we've discovered, what I think you all see and we all see is the bigger challenge. You know the data's there, you know the volume's there. How do you make a decision in ambiguity because there's usually some piece of the puzzle that's missing? I'm always very suspicious when I have guests on the show, Paul, who said, well, the data proves this, this, and that. And I, I'm always suspicious because the data can prove anything you want it to prove. Um, Data can be manipulated in all sorts of ways, can't it? Data in itself, as you suggest, is it's raw. It needs to be processed. That's right. It's Yes, you can torture data into anything that you want it to do. Um, so you need a discerning eye to discover the torture that's happening to it. Um, and, you know, as is famously said, uh, data is the new oil. But as is almost famously said, you need a refinery to convert it into something that's usable. And so when you look at data, again, that's one component of a decision, the way we think about it. And from our perspective, a decision does not need to be a bureaucratic conflict. And it feels like you're battling you know, a multi-headed hydra, but you're really playing a team sport and simply trying to move forward. And why is that difficult? Because a decision represents change and humans are not wired for change, whether it is the volatility or any of the other things that we, we've just discussed. And most of us are risk averse. So we think there's no roadmap, but let's look at examples where there are roadmaps. Um, the great examples, a medical professional in an ER, 
a military unit, a fire department, even an American football offensive line. Forget about the wide receivers and everybody else, that offensive line. Those are all examples, and there are plenty more, where they operate in an orchestrated fashion, and they know the steps to take. And because of that, they're prepared to react in real time. So whether it's the doctor in the ER handling the next trauma or the quarterback who makes an audible with just a few seconds to go, they calmly take action. But what happens in a boardroom? What happens in an office? There's no box on the wall that says break glass to get a good decision maker. That's where we stumble, right? Um, we retreat to comfort zones, some to data and then more data and others to gut instinct. And very few try to fuse that together. So that's the challenge. Can you fuse that together? And I'm sure you've all been in that meeting, right? There's a good decision maker that you know that you've seen do exactly this. There's a large room, a lot of people. Slide 17 has popped up. Yes, it's death by PowerPoint. And a voice says, hold on. How do you know the number on that slide that you just put up relates to the fact that you presented 17 slides before. So that's the essence. That leader cut right to the issue. She used the combination of what we refer to as precision questioning, contextual analysis, and then some synthesis to look at the whole situation despite that incomplete information that we described before. And that's the core of what we talk about in the book, Decisions Over Decimals. It's a uh, framework that we refer to as quantitative intuition. And the whole reason we wrote this is because we think there should be a tribe of better decision makers so the business world wastes less. Well, I want to uh, come back to quantitative intuition because that's the core of your book. But mm -hmm. I'd like to pick up on your reference to sports teams and the use sure. of data. I wonder, Paul, um, uh, uh, Moneyball, was very fashionable for a while in baseball and other sports teams. And my understanding is that there's a lot of pushback against that. Are we at a point in the history of data analysis where there's more and more skepticism to the, the money ball philosophy? There probably is. And I think these are individual choices. And before I say anything else, I just want to point out that the three authors, two of us are engineers, and one is a statistician and a data scientist. So we by no means ignore the data. We love I thought you data. were going to mention that uh, two of you support uh, the Giants and the other the Dodgers or something. No, no, no. I, well, I, I think one of us doesn't care about baseball. I'm a New York Yankee fan. Sorry, haters out there. What can I tell you? But um, but to your point, th there's there probably is more of a holistic view that that's happened. And if you really want to go to the essence of Moneyball, you know, the system was conceived and implemented by the A's and they still didn't have the resources to put it in play. And then some of the same people that conceived of the sabermetrics and were the, the first uh, apostles and disciples of it brought it to other teams. And that's how teams like the Boston Red Sox won the World Series because they started to implement it in a more deliberate way, which means they looked at the math and they made some good intuitive choices. 
But it is also, you, you, you noted that it was begun by the A's and it was begun by the A's because they were a small market team and a small budget team in, in contrast, say, with the Yankees. Tampa Bay uh, Rays are doing the same thing. Um, is data in some ways an excuse or data analytics and relying on data analytics? Is it a small budget excuse sometimes? A small budget excuse for what? For not involving intuition, which uh, which might be more expensive and complicated. Uh, well, that's interesting. I, I thought where you were going with that is around, the, you know, these smaller attempts, these smaller um, approaches and investments are almost the model that the larger teams, the larger businesses uh, then adopt, which looks suspiciously like Silicon Valley, doesn't it? Right. Well, a friend of mine has just started a, a fund focused on, on the B round, a venture fund, sure. using data specifically to analyze what uh, firms should or shouldn't invest in. Um, again, it's in a sense, it's much cheaper to do this than hire high price analysts who are just out of uh, Harvard or Columbia Business School. Sure. Well, and if you can... Look, there, there's uh, the, the VC and PE firms can define what role they want to be in. And yeah, if you can be a Series B investor, probably better than a Series C level investor. But if you can be in that role and you've got the, the flow of funds and the flow of deals coming through you, then by all means, someone else did the prospecting. Somebody else did the, the early work. And ideally, they use some of these techniques so they were more efficient in getting to a decision. Let's come back to the heart of your book, this idea of quantitative intuition, not quantitative easing, which is a, a banking term. Um, some people might think that this is having your cake and eat it. It's having both. And some people might say, well, isn't this obvious that you need both data and intuition? How would you respond to both those critiques? So uh, we noted before that the three of us teach at Columbia Business School. And we get all manner of... Uh, Is that a good or a bad thing? That we think it's a good thing. We get all manner of exec MBA and exec ed students who are very seasoned uh, people uh, at different stages in their careers. And we'll inevitably run into a few who say, well, I think that's obvious. And then the rebuttal is, but are you doing these things? No. Do you have a, a systematic framework to progress through this efficiently? No. Well, okay, maybe there's some things to learn. Maybe, maybe there's a system that you could put in place because it's easy to, to look at something and say, yeah, I get it, but you're not doing it. So what we've articulated here is a framework that, uh, you know, interestingly, the, the students, we hear them say two things. One is, oh, now I understand as the capstone class, um, now I understand why I took all those other classes, because this provides an overall framework, which was not necessarily our intention of a framework for an MBA program, but it, it tends to land that way for those who take this as an elective course. And the others say, um, if you remember uh, Karate Kid, they say, oh, you've Miyagi'd me. Like what? You taught me karate without like drilling me on the techniques of karate, but suddenly I understand how to make a better decision. And, uh, you know, it's a pretty good feeling 
having professionals of uh, the caliber that we see. And in the business world, we're out there consulting as well, a little on the side, um, have them come back and say, yeah, this was a missing framework. This is uh, an approach that cuts through a lot of uh, the ambiguity in decision making. And you've got a three-stage process. You call it precision questioning, contextual analysis, and then synthesis. Yep. Is this just an excuse to sell your consulting services, or can people do this on their own? They can do this on their own. It's you know we we don't have a consulting business that's thriving, as you pointed out before, or you're about to point out. We work for uh, large companies, and we teach at Columbia. So we're, we're not pushing um, a, a consulting company here. What we do think that we have here is a better method. And we'd like to build a tribe of people that are more efficient in their decision making, because frankly, it's exhausting, right? You're in those meetings. I'm in those meetings where you're sitting there and saying, why is this so difficult? We can do better. But people don't have that framework. So you know, we've articulated. Jeff Bezos' fix on this, and I know one of you has been involved with Amazon, is simply to cancel the meetings. Maybe <laughs> it's the meetings we need to get rid of. That, uh, you know what? I, you might be right. Yeah, exactly. What about the role of a, of a book? Your congratulations. The, the book is the number one release in business and finance on Amazon of all places, which is significant. Um, don't people read intuitively or do they read looking for information so it's the medium and the message here once again paul um how do you put this into a book how do you because you're not in a classroom you, you and your, your two co-authors teach at columbia it's one thing to be in a classroom but when this book gets into people's hands is that you and your other authors aren't sitting next to them you don't have the opportunity to talk to them um, how do you think people read? Do they read intuitively or are they looking for data? Or perhaps uh, are they trying to combine your quantitative intuition in terms of reading books in a, in a Malcolm Gladwellian sense? Well, to be clear, this is not a peer-reviewed kind of book. It is more a uh, Daniel Pink, Malcolm Gladwellian, if that's a word now, uh, approach. Well, we invented it. We can have it. Even There we go. Can... <laughs> uh, it, it is it, it is the mindset, right? And so what we're hearing from folks is that there's a clear and concise and actionable set of tools and techniques. And that was the design for this. So with those techniques, things like the IWIC framework and talking about guesstimation and what another thing that we talk about, the decision moment model, um, these are things I think you can pick up and you don't need our coaching necessarily to walk you through it. We, we'd love to talk to you about it. But um, as I said, there's a, a tribe of people that should be leading in better decision making. And hopefully this helps get them there. It's a business book, of course, Paul. But can uh, quantitative intuition, can it be used more broadly? Can it be used in relationships? Can it be used in teaching, in the classroom? Um, we live in a data-infested world. Uh, data, as you said, is the new oil, for better or worse. That's the reality. It's unavoidable. Yep. Um, is, this, is there a broader lesson here? I think there absolutely is. And I caution the listener to be judicious as they use some of the techniques with their significant other. 
So you, you never know how these things land in a, in a relationship. But absolutely, these are personal techniques as well. Um, you know, look at the first technique, right? You're, you're trying to get to framing a problem, which happens all the time, business world, personal life. And people talk about first principles and getting to an essential question. But how do you do it? And people look and say, well, you know, that that's the essence of how uh, Elon Musk thinks. And well, yeah, that goes back to Plato, uh, frankly. But what are the techniques that you talk about? And so we've got a framework that steps through that. And when we use it, um, it it's interesting because the first time you use uh, IWIC stands for I wish I knew. And it's specifically designed, and it's a, a methodology and a workshop, it's specifically designed to open up a conversation. And when you first do that, people get uncomfortable. And I think the reason is because they're not used to being asked, what do you really think? What do you really want to know? Often meetings start with somebody already anchoring you. The boss said, hey, let's go prove this out. Well, you've already got 80% of the answer right there. You're just filling in the details as opposed to a more open discussion that allows for thought and understanding and discovery. Paul, you mentioned that Elon Musk, as everybody knows, he's currently involved in a very high stake poker game with Twitter, uh, a legal and business poker game about who's, who needs to buy what at what price and so on. Can your theoretical framework, your quantitative intuition model, can it be used in making sense of other people's behavior? You're in the business world. You're always trying to figure out what the person on the other side of the table is thinking. Um, is it helpful as a psychological tool too? Can it help us win big poker games, real poker games or the poker games of life? Uh, I, I think so. I think a little bit. And, and I want to I want to clarify one thing you said that the theory, this is based on a, a combination of some some good techniques that are based on sound theory. But this is practical. We use this every day. Right. So if you look at um, the techniques, one of them looks at time, risk and trust. And any decision, you could probably map against that. Do you have no time, in which case it's a crisis, or an inordinate amount of time, in which case you're, you know, the government, U.S. Congress, Parliament, what have you? Is it high or low risk? And then the third dimension is it, and you have to define what risk is, of course. Then the third dimension, trust. Do you trust the information? Do you trust the data? Do you trust the person that brought it to you? What is the motive of the person that brought that to you? Do you trust the organization that stands behind that person? And now you can get to what you were just talking about, Andrew, of looking at the psychological mapping and the relationship mapping and understanding how is this decision coming together? And a decision, much like a negotiation, is a dance. What is the perspective of the other person? I think a negotiation mindset is a wonderful tool to have in your toolkit because if you are not thinking about what the other person is hearing from you, what you are hearing from them, how the message is landing, what the totality is of the value of a decision, you're probably not going to have a, a, a good 
business um, arrangement? Paul, a couple of months ago, I had Margaret Mitchell, uh, ex-Google exec who no longer is with Google. She, she, she's no longer with them because she was critical of the ethics of AI. We've had a number of shows on the ethics of AI, one with a, a Deloitte executive, Bina Amanath, who believes that AI can be used to good effect to solve the problem of diversity. She has a new book out, Trustworthy AI. How does AI play into your theory of quantitative intuition? Can it be used or is it dangerous? Oh, I think it absolutely can be used. And it is currently on the far end of the more sophisticated quantitative techniques. But even that, again, you need to understand that it doesn't make the decision. It is a tool for the decision maker. So let's look at an example of where AI is, is now used more than before um, in medical imaging. So first off, a medical professional cannot keep up with all the journals that are produced in a year. They're, they are, have no ability to read that much. There's not enough hours. And so there's constant discovery and systems can absorb that information and infuse that into the analysis that they do over an image. And what you really want is, let's say there's a stack two feet high on your desk of images, uh, x-rays and scans. What you want is the system to bring up the 20% that look the most concerning. And you look at those first. You with your human eyes look at those first because the system has identified, hey, I think we've got something going on here. That's very different than letting a, an AI system as the your question sort of implies, having an AI system make the choices. The AI system is a tool. Think, Just recognize that AI is perceived as, uh, in, for some people perceived as some sort of superhuman ability to think differently. Well, we have a lot of superhuman things. We have superhuman speed, it's called a car. We have superhuman flight, it's called a plane. And we use those within a context where we make the choices of how to use those. And that's the same thing that needs to be done with AI. Don't shy away from it. We did a show with another AI authority, Toby Walsh, um, who believes that our human superpower is empathy. Um, and he's critical of trying to teach computers to be empathetic or use AI to learn empathy. Um, could we, uh, or could you, or could an entrepreneur uh, put together a product that was essentially a QI tool? Or are we always going to need humans here, whether it's intuition or quantitative intuition? Is this our special skill, our, uh, what, what Toby Walsh would call our superpower, which keeps I us in the game, keeps us in the business, keeps us relevant. I think you always need humans in the equation, right? I mean, there are a few things that you could probably automate, and this is the far end of automation, and there's good confidence that it is not a risky thing to automate, but I think you always need humans in, in the equation. And then to speak about empathy, um, one popular and important topic today is health equity, right? Do we have equitable health care 
across our geographies and across our populations and across our demographics. Well, if you train a system to measure something based on just me, right? You do something, you, you build a system that says, look at this image of skin and does that lesion look cancerous or not? And you do it just based on me. Well, that's going to work wonderfully for people that look like me. But you can design the system, and this is where the human empathy comes in, and you're basically infusing the systems with that empathy because you are now going to choose to make sure that the inputs that go into that system represent a cross-section of the population as it should. That was not a technology choice. That was a business choice. It was a human choice. It was uh, an intuitive choice because obviously, why would you have a system that is based on just the profile of one portion of your demographics? So again, the tool fits the need, but the human has to make those choices. And you're skilled in that. You're a teacher. You're you're an executive. And I'm assuming you're using QI in the management of your life, are you, uh, Paul? Uh, Maybe not with your wife or your kids or your friends, but uh, I don't know if you're married or, or whether you have kids, but I'm sure you have friends and colleagues. Uh, so married and two kids, and I'll tell you a quick story. One of the techniques that we talk about is... Uh, when you are looking at the contextual analysis and trying to synthesize information, you can use guesstimation. And so uh, my children are uh, just slightly preteen. And in both of their math classes, they're two years apart. In both of their math classes, they saw problems where they had to estimate. And they looked and they said, Dad, what, what's this? They come to me for the math, of course. Dad, what's this? What? because they're used to being absolute with an answer. That's the way math was taught. It was very deterministic. And to understand, here's a range, and this is good enough. It's a whole different way of thinking, and it is a healthy way of thinking. And to explain to um, a 12, soon to be 13-year-old and, and an 11-year-old that what VCs and market research people do on a daily basis of t-shirt sizing and looking at market sizing estimates, which is close enough, but not necessarily a precise number. That is a healthy skill to have. And it's probably a good skill to have around decisions around the house. I wonder whether decisions over decimals and, and, and quantitative intuition could also be used by kids to manage their parents better. Uh, yeah, we, we try to not coach our kids on how to manage us. So, well, that, up, right. Congratulations on the book, Paul, and your other, uh, authors, uh, decisions over decimals, striking the balance between intuition and information. It's the number one bestseller at the moment on Amazon for business, which is a big deal. Uh, what else are you reading these days, Paul? What other books, business or otherwise to make you wiser? to make me wiser. Well, or more entertained. There you go. Um, well, you know, always good reads around music, uh, entertain me. Uh, and, uh, I'm probably going to go revisit the road less traveled given the age of the kids right now, but I just did pick up 
a copy of Seth Stevens Davidovich's Don't Trust Your Gut, right? He actually endorsed our book. Thank you, Seth. And um, I wanted to immerse myself a little bit more in his, where he talks very much about the fact that the numbers don't lie and the right data can teach us about who we are and how we make our lives better. And of course, our approach complements his approach. And, and again, thanks to him for endorsing our book as well.